I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On today's show, Canada's drag race breakout superstar Jimbo. The fan favorite discusses becoming Jimbo. You know, I was very shy, very shy about the way I spoke, very shy about, you know, appearing too gay or appearing too effeminate. And so, you know, when I became Jimbo, it was really about owning myself and about renaming myself and about saying, I want to relate to this world through myself and my version of myself, Jimbo. Frustration with the judges on Canada's Drag Race. Here is my best attempt at giving you what I think you want. And when someone just goes, you're not glamorous at all. That is not a gift. Go to the garbage. I'm like, what? You know, what the fuck? His unwillingness to let the show craft his storyline. She asked me in that moment, will you talk to me about your father? And I said, this is inappropriate timing. I am here trying to sew this look and you want to crack me open like a nut on national tv for two minutes before you walk away and i was like there's no freaking way plus for the very first time jimbo opens up publicly about his childhood he burned anything of ours that was remotely gay he would burn it in our fireplace and so you know that was all led to a lot of repression a lot of insecurity i was insecure about how i walked i was insecure about how i talked i was insecure about my fashion choices i was insecure about everything because it was all viewed as wrong it was all viewed as different and i eventually was programmed that if i liked something that meant it was gay and I shouldn't like it. Shut up, Evan! Shut up! Evan! Shut up, Evan! Oh God, I hit my screen. Ah! Shut up, Evan! Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz, as I hope you know by now, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, how is it going? It's going well. Um, I, I I only laugh because that moment you just had of like introducing yourself at the top of every episode, like with autographs, I feel the same way. The interview show that you were on of mine, go check it out, plug, plug. Um, but like, I do the same thing where I'll like introduce myself and have this thought in the back of my head of like, well, they know me. Why am I introducing myself? Like, they should yeah. help I know. I just like the familiarity of like a set in stone intro, but then sometimes yeah. I stop myself to say that it's like, at this point, it's known. But maybe you don't know. Maybe it's your first time. So if so, welcome. Um, how's your week going? 
it's going okay. Um, I had a little bit of a bug the other day, and of course, it's very hard to not like be like, oh my god, did I catch coronavirus? Uh, you know, because we also we saw friends who had also been in a bubble in Philly about two weeks ago, and so like there's a, the gestation period and all that stuff. But I think it's just a cold. Uh, you know, as we get older, um, the change in seasons always bugs me. Like, and because in New York it'll be 50 and then 60 and then 80 and then 30, like. My allergies just can't handle it. So I think it's either cold or allergies. But beyond that, I'm doing all right. I think it's just kind of getting into the swing of things and making sure I'm on top of all the stuff I've got to, I got to get done. You know, I, I try not to overburden myself, but I don't know about you, but like when I know I have stuff I have to get done, like I, I can't rest until it's at a place where I feel like it's resolved. Otherwise, it'll just be in the back of my mind constantly bothering me. Oh, I mean, I can... Beyond relief. Yes, very much so. And then also the one other thing I'll say is I am joining uh, folks of the 90s and 2000s. I am finally watching The West Wing. I had never seen The West Wing before. And for my spouse's birthday, which just a few days after mine in October, she wanted to watch the HBO special they did, the voting special where they redid the, the Hartford County episode. I think that's correct. And so that was really cool. It was like a stage play in an empty uh, theater, and it was really neat. But then I was like, I said to my spouse, Sarah, I was like, so this show's pretty good, actually. Do you want to watch it with me? And she got so excited because she loves The West Wing. And so we've been watching it. We're like in six episodes in, and I love it. It's so unbelievable how a show like that can hit the ground running so hard and be so good from the start. Like, Because mm. I, I don't think I've ever seen it like that before yeah it's also one of my favorite alice and jenny roles and i would say unique about the west wing i will say not to like it does get less good towards the tail end but i would say west wing is one of those shows that stays good for a long time unlike a lot of like classic shows that sort of have like that up the mountain down the mountain trajectory i think west wing has a pretty steady ride yeah, it's it's been great to see these baby faces, all of these actors, even Martin Sheen, who I've mostly followed through a video game franchise I love. So it's just a digital version of him. So you don't even see him age. But like, like they're all so young looking. Even the older actors and actresses are so young looking. And it's wild to me. But it's great. I love it. It's, it's fun. I like dramedies. I like serious shows that have some levity and comedy in it. Like those are my favorites. And so I'm eating it up right now. Absolutely. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Um, I'm wrapping up my time upstate. I'm returning to the city next weekend. Uh, Small Parv update. So (laughs) we had secured a home for her. Um, Uh We found my dear friend Jake Cohen's mother is a vet. And she was like, you know, grab a cage, bring her home. I'll take a look at her and we'll find her home. I was so excited. We went back to the city for the weekend. I left her a huge thing of food in the front. And I even said to her, I was like, this is your food. We'll be back Monday. It's now, we're taping this on Friday. Um, She has not returned all week. So I am hoping that she found, you know, she was a wildcat to begin with. She found her way back into the wilderness. She doesn't need us anymore. So, but part of me is just sad just because I just, I, you know, this cat was always outside of our home for the last couple of weeks and it became, you know, like family in a short time. And uh, so anyway, that is the, the Parv update. Um, Really excited to get into today's show, uh, where obviously we're going to have Jimbo on this episode by very popular demand. Uh, But first up, we are going to talk about Chris Pratt, um, another 
topic by popular demand. <laughs> but before that, I just want to mention um, that over on our Patreon this week, we have an interview with the fabulous Adore Delano from season six of RuPaul's Drag Race and from All Stars 2. Um, she talks with us uh, about her just launched OnlyFans page. It's the very first interview that she's done about it. This is a platform I mean, they're basically paying me to do this. Might as well do it. There's like Reddit posts of all of our nudes. Might as well make money off of it. <laughs> um, it's true. Like, I had no idea until Darian told me about that, actually. And that, that, that was like a recent discovery about a month and a half ago. And that was kind of a trigger point for me to be like, you know what? Let me just tiger it up and just start making money off of this shit. Because I mean, if they're going to be like gossiping about my penis size, I might as well like make money showing a little less. And we get into a subject very near and dear to my heart, which is an interview from 2019 in which Adore, Nina West, and Monet Exchange appeared on The View, being interviewed by Meghan McCain. And there was a ton of backlash that all three of the queens faced for sitting down with Meghan. So I get into Adore about that. Uh, and it's really, really interesting to hear her perspective looking back on it a year later. I really didn't give a fuck, to be honest. Like, I feel like uh my like training and going through like tv when i was younger it helps me to kind of like just ghost that kind of energy when they become negative like that i know it affected the other girls a bit more because i don't think they're used to that because they're so loved on the scene mm. um but i really don't give a fuck and i think that that's part of my appeal <laughs> anyway if you want the full interview patreon.com forward slash shut up evan full interview is up on there um and that is that on a door but let's get into the chris pratt of it all matt are you aware that chris pratt is a trending topic this week boy am i ever and uh well i'll let you get into the details but i have feelings obviously fantastic <laughs> um so let's start as we always try to do with some context um this story begins with an october 17th tweet from television producer amy berg that reads quote one has to go and it's accompanied by four photos one of chris pratt one of chris hemsworth one of chris evans and one of chris pine for those unfamiliar, this is a very popular meme template on Twitter and one that ignites and flames a lot of stan wars. It's often very messy, which might as well be Twitter's slogan. Um, it's pretty much par for the course. If you log in in the morning, you're going to see some iteration of this tweet um, because, again, it's Twitter. So the ranking of the Hollywood Chris's joke actually began sort of in earnest in 2017 when Chris Pine, my favorite Chris, hosted Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Saturday Night Live. I always have so much trouble saying that. And during his opening monologue, he joked about the fact that he's often mistaken for the other three Chris's. That clip went viral, and from there began what Vanity Fair described as the christening of Hollywood. And so basically, this tweet that just went viral is retreading heavily trodden territory. I think that's really important to state here. And because Pine, Hemsworth, and Evans are largely seen as unproblematic kings, Pratt, who has some questionable associations that we'll get into, was overwhelmingly deemed the one that's got to go. Okay, simple, fine, NBD. This awoke many of Pratt's friends and co-stars from their slumber who decided to take to social media to defend Pratt against 
a viral tweet. So first up, we have Robert Downey Jr., which, who posted a picture of the two of them on Instagram with the caption, quote, what a world. The sinless are casting stones at my brother, Chris Pratt. A real Christian who lives by principle has never demonstrated anything but positivity and gratitude, and he just married into a family that makes space for civil discourse and just plain fact insists on service as the highest value. If you take issue with Chris, I've got a novel idea. Delete your social media accounts. Sit with your own defects of character. Work on them. Then celebrate your humanness. Hashtag, I got your back, back, back. Okay. Then came Mark Ruffalo. Quote, you all, Chris Pratt is as solid a man as there is. I know him personally. And instead of casting aspersions, look at how he lives his life. He is just not overtly political as a rule. This is a distraction. Let's keep our eyes on the prize, friends. We are so close now. Then came Pratt's Guardians of the Galaxy co-star Zoe Saldana. Quote, no matter how hard it gets, stick your chest out, keep your head up and handle it, she wrote, quoting rapper Tupac, then adding, you got this, Chris Pratt. Your family, friends, colleagues, and everyone who's ever crossed paths with you knows your heart and your worth. It didn't stop there. Because then came Pratt's wife, Katherine Schwarzenegger, daughter of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who weighed in in the comment section of an E! News post on Instagram, saying, quote, Is this really what we need? There's so much going on in the world and people are struggling in so many ways. Being mean is so yesterday. There's enough room to love all these guys. Love is what we need, not meanness and bullying. Let's try that. All right. Gandhi over here. So a couple of questions have emerged from this that I'd love us to dive into briefly. Uh, one, what's people's beef with Chris Pratt? Two, why are people so annoyed at seeing this celebrity response and sort of this uh, this ardent defending of Chris Pratt from many prominent figures in Hollywood? And three, and this was a question I got asked a lot on Instagram by people that kind of are either ambivalent to Chris Pratt or just don't understand why he's being attacked. And that question is, is this cancel culture at play? So we'll get into that. I think it's first worth noting that prior to like in the 2018 and before era, I'm talking the Parks and Recreation and prior to the first Jurassic Park, Chris Pratt was really popular. And I think it's really easy to forget that moment in time, but there was sort of a ubiquity of Chris Pratt kind of in the latter years of Parks and Rec and then coming off of that show in which he was sort of, he had a little bit of that internet boyfriend status to him. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just interesting in noting sort of like the decline that we're seeing at present is worth sort of looking up against how popular he was. And I think things started to turn in 2019. And I think that is in large part, not entirely so, but because of Pratt's association with Hillsong, which is a celebrity beloved megachurch of which Pratt is a frequent attendee. And I think that hearing about that, and we'll get into the problematic uh, ways of Hillsong in a moment, but I think hearing that sort of put a dent in his image. So in February, 2019, Ellen Page, the best Ellen of the Ellens, uh, tweeted out a link to an interview that Pratt gave about the church with the comment. And this is again, Ellen Page's comment. She said, oh, okay. Um, but his church is infamously anti-LGBTQ. So maybe address that too. She then followed up that tweet, Queen, with a uh, quote, if you are a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. There aren't two sides. The damage it causes is severe. 
full stop, sending love to all. Pratt responded, as people do these days, with an Instagram story. Um, and he wrote, It has recently been suggested that I belong to a church which, quote, hates a certain group of people and is infamously anti-LGBTQ. Nothing could be further from the truth. I go to a church that opens their doors to absolutely everyone. Record scratch. Because here's the D. Hillsong was founded by an anti-gay pastor. His name is Brian Houston, who wrote in 2015 that, quote, Hillsong Church welcomes all people, but does not affirm all lifestyles. Put clearly, we do not affirm a gay lifestyle. And because of this, we do not knowingly have actively gay people in positions of leadership, either paid or unpaid. End quote. First of all, I don't know what the difference between actively gay and inactively gay is. I don't really want to know. Um, but this is in addition to the church's lengthy history of gay conversion therapy. If this is a subject you're really fascinated by, feel free to Google. I'm not going to like go down the stormhole too, too deep, but just to say Hillsong Church, kind of not the most inclusive atmosphere. So to be clear, Pratt attends Los Angeles's Zoe Church, which is a branch of Hillsong. And though Zoe Church has not officially come out against the LGBTQ plus community, its pastor produced a film that equated homosexuality with, quote, sexual brokenness. So I think you can get the impression that they're not exactly for the community. So the beef with Chris Pratt comes mainly from his association and defense of this church. But I think worth noting, that story is nearly two years old. But thanks to this tweet, it has received attention as though it was brand new. And a lot of the online sort of response to this, which is just dunking on a famous cis white millionaire, is just sort of like... I would consider innocent internet fun that a lot of celebrities have taken really seriously. Um, but again, it should be clear that nothing new has been added to reframe this story in any way. It just caught the attention of someone on the internet and then it just kind of kept getting retweeted and just sort of bubbling up into the zeitgeist. So... Why are people so annoyed with celebs defending Pratt? This, I think, is the interesting part of the story. I'm going to throw to you, Matt, to help contextualize. I know you're like a big Marvel fan. But first, I'm just going to say that Chris Pratt, like Ellen DeGeneres before him, will be okay. Neither his health, safety, career, or anything significant at all will be affected by this. And I just want to underline that to say that it's like, with all due respect, actually, I don't have a lot of respect, but with all due to these celebs, uh, I'm not quite sure what the there there was. Anyway, Matt, can you help explain why some people are so annoyed to see so many of his friends and colleagues weighing in on this? Sure, yeah. So I think it stems from a very easy to pinpoint place, and then we can blow it up from there. Uh, fandom as a whole, the word itself even, has been pretty toxic in recent years. Lots of people going to bat for franchises and mega corporations that do not care about them because uh, the race of a character has changed or a, there's a gay character in a show. like, And then it, go, it builds out from there. I mean, famously with Star Wars, the actress who played Rose Tico, uh, Kelly Marie Tran, was driven off the internet. Um, so was Daisy Ridley. And like there of other things that have come to light with Star Wars and possible racisms and how it treated Finn in the story and John Boyega has spoken up about that but needless to say Star Wars as one of the largest franchises al alongside Marvel has seen fans go to take down these people and Mar and the reason I bring that up is because Marvel is no different 
Zendaya, Brie Larson, and Tessa Thompson all, when they got cast, dealt with outrage and backlash that these actors can't play these characters. You know, obviously with Zendaya, it was a race thing. She's playing MJ. MJ is white in the comics, so obviously Zendaya can't be MJ, which of course doesn't fucking matter. You know, and then with Tessa Thompson, also Valkyrie, a canonically white character in the comic books, also a straight character, I think. I don't think they get into her sexuality in the comics. Both of those things are different on screen. People lost their effing minds. And then with Brie Larson, Brie Larson was an indie darling. She'd been in some blockbuster-ish movies, but for the most part, she was a, uh, not a super well-known actor and playing this giant character of Captain Marvel who has been in comics for a very long time and is like a cosmic character on the level of Thanos. So it's like this big deal character who's going to come save the planet. And people were outraged also idiots who thought captain marvel was still a man which captain marvel hasn't been a man for a very long time the character be like the character changed and the popular captain marvel became a woman years ago but white straight men in nerd fandoms are dumb and so they first it was that and then this unknown actress playing this character but that's marvel's mo nobody knew who tom hiddleston was before he played loki you know nobody knew who chris helmsworth was before he played thor and is it fair to say in these instances that the response from the co-stars was silence. Yes, that and that's the biggest part, is that with the fan outrage, which is annoying enough as someone who just thinks it's all petty and stupid, then beyond that, every time this has happened in the past with these female co-stars, to my knowledge, no one stepped forward and defended them. And that, I think, is a huge deal. Now, I don't know if that's 100%. I feel like knowing Tom Holland's relationship with Zendaya now, I feel like he would have defended her. But also, this was when she first got cast. They didn't know each other yet. And so, like, I feel like if it would happen now, they're buddy-buddy, and maybe he would have said something. But we don't know. But at the time when these actors were first cast in these roles, there was tons of aspersions thrown at them, and none of their co-stars spoke up. Now, again, maybe it's because they didn't shoot together, they hadn't become friends yet, I don't know. But still... That hardly seems to matter. It's very suspect that a straight white man who is being torn down on the internet is now being defended by his co-stars where the women and queer actors in a similar situation got nothing. And this is such another example, as we were talking about two weeks ago, of the Streisand effect in that both Mark Ruffalo and Katherine Schwarzenegger, they're kind of pleading that there's so much there's so many more bigger things going on in the world than this. Why are we talking about this? And it's like, well, why are you talking about this? Mark Ruffalo, why are you using your platform to speak about this in any way? Because there are lots of people out there, the majority of the people I found had no idea what was going on. And suddenly they saw that the topic was trending and because it's sort of human nature decided to come down on a side of this or, or, or form a position on an argument that they would have otherwise felt no kind of way about. Because again, remember, this is just a meme. This was yeah. a meme. But so it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're getting at is this is just blatant hypocrisy. Yeah, it it is. Because also, like besides Zoe Saldana, it was white men who stood up for him as well and like i just it, it's it feels very bro codish broish mm. straight white men sticking up for each other and like of course i am assuming uh, robert downey jr and mark ruffalo's sexualities i don't know because in public eye who knows and so that's not fair of me i guess but based on what i've seen it just seems like it's men supporting men but men continuing to not support women people of color bull in the lgbtq plus community like and and that's where my side of the outrage is is a i'm just pissed that 
this man who seemed to have a good heart and kind heart, and I've seen videos of him dressed as Star-Lord in hospitals, like talking to kids who love comic books, would be a part of a church that hates the queer community. Like it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. But then I realized, oh, but he's got privilege. He doesn't, he probably didn't even know or doesn't care. Exactly. And I do think it's worth highlighting the first part of that, that he just might not know. I do think that is a worthwhile piece of the puzzle here because we're making a lot of assumptions about Chris Pratt's character. He might be the most awful, heartless human being. He might be a god among us. I don't know. We'll probably never know. But again, it just comes down to the fact of like, nothing is at risk here for him. So the neat, so it's interesting that you mentioned like Zendaya earlier or Brie Larson or Tessa Thompson, who, whose careers could have used that backup from these powerful figures within the Marvel verse to affirm their existence in that universe. It actually could have monetarily affected their trajectory, the trajectory of their career. Um, Whereas I just, you know, Chris Pratt is not, nothing is at stake here. So the last thing I wanted to hit on before we go to our interview is a lot of people were in my DMs this week when I was posting about this asking me, is this cancel culture? You know, is this just another example? Because I think uh, people see a lot of my posts about Dolce & Gabbana because I am uh, (laughs) ardent in my desire to cancel Dolce & Gabbana and they see me say stuff like this and they kind of wonder, oh, is this just another example of you wanting to cancel someone? So to that I say, the, the, the short and long answer is no. It's not as though Chris... Okay, this is like the, a really important detail I was thinking about. It's not as though Chris Pratt was some ardent and outspoken defender of LGBTQ plus rights. So right. there's no reason to have any kind of shock over his affiliation with the church. This does not... It's not as though this goes against the man that we know. It's more an instance of we don't know the man. I think if there was, you know, we keep saying hypocrisy, if there was another example of hypocrisy, if he was out here preaching his love for the LGBTQ plus community and contributing to our community and then being a part of this church, I think we'd have more uh, room to sort of say, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. But again, I just don't think there's an equation. And it should be restated that this story is very old. It's just having a life cycle on the internet right now because our anxiety over the election makes it cathartic to express anger in any form. I get it. Um, But I think this is more a case of celebrities showing just how out of touch they are with the real world, which of course harkens back to the Imagine video that came out at the beginning of quarantine. The line was never fuck Chris Pratt. I hope Jurassic World Dominion bombs at the box office and his Parks and Rec's residual checks don't clear. It was of four sexy cis white mega millionaires named Chris. This one ranks at the bottom. It's really not that complicated. And yet you have all these celebrities coming out to defend their man. So just to say, I got into it. I don't want to blow up her name, but with a celebrity on Instagram who is friends with Chris Pratt, who was wondering, she was like, what's your issue with Chris Pratt? I don't have an issue with Chris Pratt. (laughs) This is the same thing with the Ellen thing. I don't know them. I don't care. I just, it's fun to drag people when there's no consequence to the dragging. Does that make sense? It's like, they're not going to experience any, nothing will come. There's no ramification from this. If anything, Chris Pratt will be, become more of a trending topic and his, his net worth might go up as a result because he's in all of our mouths. So all this just to say, I don't love Chris Pratt. He definitely falls at the bottom of my four Hollywood Chris's. And I also don't know Chris Pratt. And I I welcome the idea that he actually is a wonderful human being. I hope he is. That would be wonderful. (sighs) So that's that. Do you have anything else to add to to the Chris Pratt discussion? 
I mean, it's just for me, as someone who did follow his career, was a big fan of his, it's disappointing to know that I, as a bisexual man, is not important to him. And, and like, I mean, as a human, I don't expect to be important to him. He doesn't know me. But as, like, a person within a community, especially considering he loves Marvel, and I said he's gone to children's hospitals, he's, you know, he's done funny videos with Chris Evans. Like, he seems like a genuinely good guy to find out that he supports this and I had known already, but for to come up again and still not really matter in the discourse that he supports this mega church, it's just a bummer. Am I going to stop seeing any movie he's in? Maybe. I mean, it doesn't really matter because, again, like we all have to make our stand where we feel right. But I think what's important is to highlight what Queen Ellen Page said, like to bring this to the attention and say, this is the problem. Who cares about this other stuff? This, this is the problem here. You know, and like I'm also like you said, maybe he doesn't know. Yes, but also we all have Google. Like to not know when someone calls you out on something, it takes ten seconds to Google. So that I believe less. Yes, and the fact that he's responding to Ellen Page's in uh, her tweet sort of tells you that like he is someone who is in some form plugged into the conversation that's being had about him. Yeah. I think it's worth noting he has said nothing throughout this entire thing at all, which again makes this so interesting because again to contrast this with Ellen, Ellen is someone who has contributed to the conversation around her, has fueled the flames of the conversation, whereas Chris Pratt silence, just yep. Catherine Schwarzenegger. Um, so. Let's take this opportunity to redirect the conversation by saying support Chris Pratt's ex-wife, Anna Ferris, a fantastic comedic actress who has a tremendous body of film work and television work and deserves more. So honestly, redirect who's the best Anna? Anna Ferris. period. So moving right along, really excited for today's show. This is a guest that had been requested from the season before the season even began, and we were going to do the interview in the middle of Canada's Drag Race while it was in cycle, and something told me to hold off, because I was like, I need to see where the story of Jimbo on Canada's Drag Race ends, and I'm so glad we did, because Jimbo went out not with a whimper, not with a bang, just with a screech. And I am so excited that we were able to sort of dive into some of the moments on the show that I think so many of us enjoyed, but also get to know a side of Jimbo that, as you'll hear, he deliberately kept from viewers on the show. So without any further ado, also, hey, feel free to DM me with your thoughts on Chris Pratt. I've heard a lot of them already. I love discourse so tell me tell me to go fuck myself tell me you agree tell me that there's gray area i want to hear all of it but not right now what i want to do right now is turn over to our interview with jimbo let's do it he is a drag performer and was one of the contestants on the very first season of Canada's Drag Race, where he placed in the top four. A self-professed clown, he is known for his campy, larger-than-life drag persona and his stunning looks, all of which he sews himself, and trust me, we will get into that. He is bubbling with creativity. He's got charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent, and is truly a one-of-a-kind presence on stage. I am a tremendous fan of his. He is the great Jimbo. Jimbo, thank you so much for being here. Oh my God, Evan, you know how to talk to a drag queen. Oh my God, <laughs> places I didn't even know I could blush. 
<laughs> I'm just so delighted to have you. You know, there's so few things to be happy and grateful for in quarantine and having Canada's Drag Race was truly, I knew I was going to love it, but the fact that I had this much of a connection to the show and these queens, you all truly just created such a bright spot in a dark time. Thank you so much. That was, that was what we were so excited, you know, as, as we filmed the show and we were all in secrecy and we were just DMing each other. COVID, the pandemic started and we were all, everything went into insurity and we were also afraid. That was our main gift to the world. We thought was at least we are going to provide some joy and some levity and some laughter in a really hard time. And so, yeah, it was, it was a hard time to do it, but it was also kind of the best time to do it. Absolutely. And you know what, for an American to see all of these talented queens in Canada, I really think it just showed the diversity of the drag scene in Canada and how real it is, how talented you all are. If anything, I left there being like, okay, I need to get my ass into the clubs of Canada and see all of these queens live. Yes. Now I'm a famous drag queen. <laughs> you are. You are. You know, how has fame affected you? Do you feel like fame is something that you've taken to easily? Does it fit well for you? You know, I'm still getting used to it. It's only, you know, in, through every conversation that I have where I really get a sense of how my work is affecting people. And, you know, that's what this celebrity is to me. It's just, it's actually just the ability to connect with people and to let people know that I have a message, which is to share love, which is to believe in yourself and which is to self-express and to, to do that in the world with beauty and, and intention for love. And with big tits. And with big tits. I'm going to start by asking you a bit of an obvious question, but do you feel robbed in any way? And, and, and with no disrespect to Priyanka the winner or the two finalists who are all phenomenal queens, fan sentiment among many feel this way. And so I'm just wondering, do you feel that way in any sense? I don't feel robbed. I feel kind of the opposite in the way that... I've been given so much love. I have been given so much support. I have been given so much, you know, praise for my ability to realize my looks and to share those looks sort of fearlessly. And so, you know, did I get all of the critiques and all the feedback from the judges that I had hoped? No, but I did connect with my audience and my audience gave me the feedback that made sense to me. And as a clown, that's, I'm performing for my audience. I'm not performing for the judges. You know, they're a part of my audience, but you know, the audience is actually the world. And those are three voices within the world. And so I don't feel robbed. I feel like I basically had the best possible outcome, which is to create a huge conversation, an international conversation about what are critiques, what are good critiques? What is it to do drag? What does good drag look like? and you know makeup and preconceived notions around what a drag queen's makeup should look like and how important is it for you to be the best makeup artist in the room or how important is it for you to have a message and to have a a way to connect with people to share that message. I wanna, I wanna get into those judges critiques for a second because as a viewer of the show, it was quite perplexing for much of this season, the dissonance between what I, the viewer was seeing and what the judges were saying to you. And that seemed to be a lot of the sentiment online. You're not a newbie to drag, you've been doing this, you've refined the Jimbo experience. How did it feel being judged and then having that judgment take place on television? Well, I loved being there on the stage. I loved trying to figure it out. I'm not a runway model. And so when I'm designing a look and when I'm coming up with a character, 
the least thing on my mind is to walk straight down a line and then pose and then walk straight and pose and hit the road. So that took me a long time to really try to understand what is that? What are we doing there? And, you know, people laugh at my runway walk and, you know, but it was really fun to be there with Stacy and for me to try my best to be a model and to walk confidently and then to be given that beautiful critique from her about keeping my shoulders back and, you know, tits and teeth, as my mom said, I was surprised at how intense the critiques were. I was surprised at sort of the tone overall tone of the judging and the critiques. I was surprised at it, but it did make for a very polarizing show and a really exciting show because it really got the fans involved and going, are you guys freaking blind? Like what's going on? (laughs) That was, that was fun because, you know, at the time, of course, I'm thinking that in my head and I got home and I cried to my mom. Of course, the first thing I did ran home and cried to my mom. (laughs) They were so mean to me. (laughs) And she, you know, it was the same thing that had happened to me my whole life. And so she cuddled me and she held me and she said, don't worry, hon. I'm sure it's, you were amazing. I'm sure that it was amazing. Celebrate your success, celebrate your failures. And so, you know, coming out and having the whole world agree with, you know, what I felt in that moment, which was, wow, that's intense. And holy, that was kind of mean. And wow, I really wish that you were nicer right now. So when the whole world felt that with me, I was like, yes, they get it. But then it went a little bit too far where people were like, oh, now I need to, beyond disagreeing, I need to take this person down. And that's where it went too far. And it went from being like, oh, I disagree with, I actually need to destroy this other human. And that was very hard, very sad to watch. Absolutely. And you know, I'm really glad that you bring that up. I think in the beginning, I remember... I was seeing some of Jeffrey's comments about some of your looks and I was one of those people that took to Twitter and was like outraged on your behalf. And I was just having fun with it being like, are you, is this person blind? What are they seeing? And then I quickly saw over time as you're sort of speaking to right now that there's a part of the fandom that took what was just sort of saying, hey, this judge is crazy. And they took it to a place that started to be personal blows. And really a lot of it ended up being very outright racist comments about Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. And I noticed that he was not participating in any social media around the show, which gave me a sense that he was aware of this conversation and that was getting, it was getting to him somehow. And I think I sort of had a realization that one can be pro Jimbo without being anti Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. And also I think it's worth noting that a lot of my frustration, if you will, with Jeffrey Boyer Chapman was because he was making good TV. Yeah. And so, yes, I'm really glad that you speak to that. When you started to see that turn in the fandom online, how do you as a queen react to that? Because on the one hand, it's like these people are coming out and they're in support of you. That's the, the, what they're deep down, they're just trying to sort of get behind their queen and uplift you. But obviously it took a toxic turn. What is it like for you being the one who's being praised, but having to see someone who, having to see someone sort of get a really rough go of it? Well, I was very sad for the whole thing. When I set out creating those looks, preparing for the competition, when I made my hair look and my denim look and my Joan Rivers and, you know, Mm. when I all those looks the point was to spread joy was to spread laughter was to be seen by the judges and by the world and by the drag community and to be celebrated and to spread joy and love and so when the response was 
positive, but with this negative, this big overshadowing of negative, it became kind of like Canada's judge race instead of the drag race. Everyone started to focus all on the judges. And I'm like, who cares about the stinking judges? What about the freaking drag queens? That we yeah. All these looks. We are here. We are working our asses off. And everyone's talking about these stinking judges. I'm like, let's talk about the drag, not about the judges. Yes. You know, I felt badly for him. So badly for him. It's everyone's intention to be received with love, to be received with positivity so that you can create more love and create more positivity through your art and your being and so you know knowing that his intention going into this was I am beautiful Jeffrey Boyer Chapman I am a drag fan I want to be legendary I want to read these queens I want to uplift these queens and I want to leave my mark on the drag race world I know that, you know, anyone can put two and two together and go, there's a man with a dream that is doing his dream. And so when you're, when you see that, regardless of anybody and what they've done, when, when they're met with such criticism and it, it makes them go back and withdraw within themselves and to shut down their social media and to start shutting down and withdrawing, that is the saddest outcome I could possibly imagine for anybody who's achieved a dream. And so I really wanted to encourage everyone to just realize that he's a human being, that this is a television show and that he deserves love. He deserves yes. love. No one deserves to be to be criticized like that. And you know, he deserves, you know, obviously to think about what he said to me. Very limited amount of time to construct these looks, paint our faces, prepare. I hear you, girl. Everyone gets the same amount of time. Use it better, maybe. Hello. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also think he deserves to have love. He deserves to have fans. He deserves to have a place in this fandom, in this world, you know, where he wants to be, which is beloved. Yes. Very, very, very well said. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So speaking of your drag, I have a question from a fan of yours who you might recognize. Oh. Oh my gosh. Am I on? Oh my God, is this for... <sighs> 
Hold on. Whew. Hi, Jimbo. Oh my God, I am your number one fan. Oh my gosh. Uh, my name, my name. Uh, my name is Aquaria. I'm from season 10 of RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm a really, really, really big fan. Oh my gosh, this is so surreal. Um, okay, calm down, calm down. My question for you is, how do you stay so committed to your character? I mean, for me, in my drag, my personality kind of is interchangeable with my out-of-drag personality, but especially on, like, episode one, when we don't get to meet the contestants so much, we see how devoted you are to this character, to this aloof but, like, totally in-on-the-joke uh, just insanity and headspace. So how do you get there? What do you think about? What is your driving force to be so enigmatic in that sense? Oh my gosh. Oh my God, the G-O-D. That was Aquaria! <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was thinking, I was like, you know, I want to reach out to one of the Rue girls. I need to find a Jimbo super fan like myself. And I was like, duh, it's got to be Aquaria. Oh my God. Well, that was the earliest Christmas gift I've ever gotten. <laughs> so thank you. And wow, I've just, I'm in shock. I love Aquaria so much. I am a huge freaking fan of Aquaria. I have a question for her. How is she so goddamn perfect? <laughs> so beautiful. Ah, okay, but her question for me, how do I stay in character? You know, that's the essence of clowning. Your audience is all on your side as long as you're on your side. And so if you are having fun and believing in what you're doing, they're all going to be along with you until you drop it, until you until you say, oh, I'm too tired, and yeah, it's fucking over. And so, yeah, and everyone goes, oh, okay, well, that was fun until the balloon pop. And so, you know, you just keep it up and keep inflating it and keep having fun and exploring. And the thing about clown is about truth in the moment, and it's about being a conduit for joy and expression and, you know, not really thinking about things or filtering things. You just kind of let it flow and just trust that you're going to make some funny decisions. And so, you know, the longer that you stay in a character and explore that character, kind of the more aspects about a character you find. And so that's one of my favorite parts about drag is about getting into my full fantasy and then about really testing the boundaries of that fantasy. Right. So so we have Jimbo the clown, but I think one of the interesting things about being on a show like Drag Race is we're also seeing James. We're seeing James in the workroom and we're seeing James in a lot of the confessionals. Obviously, you've refined the character of Jimbo, but what was it like for you to be have that aspect of yourself, you outside of drag appearing on this show? And I guess also what I'm curious about, like, how much distance do you see there being between James and Jimbo? Because I think what Aquaria is getting at is like, Aquaria kind of is Aquaria in some form in and out of drag. Whereas I, I see what you do as being a little bit more separate, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, so I, go, I don't go by James actually. It's my birth name and it's my email because I haven't been able to really figure out how to change it properly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I go by Jimbo in and out of drag. All of my friends call me Jimbo. Uh, my partner calls me Jimbo. My family, my brother, my mom, everyone calls me Jimbo. And, you know, so James is really like if I've been bad or if someone wants to show me that they, you know, don't trust me anymore and I'm not the Jimbo they know, they'll go, oh, hello, James. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm James now. Okay. And so, you know, I am Jimbo all the time. And so I am just different levels of Jimbo. Mm. And so, you know, when I'm Jimbo in 
the confessionals and I'm wearing my lucky shirt, that shirt with the tassels. You know, that's like level one or level two or two or three, you know, there. But then, you know, the more dialed up, the crazier I get and, and the more of my internal self comes to the surface. But James, to me, is someone that I was, you know, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. You know, I was very shy, very shy about the way I spoke, very shy about appearing too gay or appearing too effeminate. And so, you know, when I became Jimbo, it was really about owning myself and about renaming myself and about saying, I want to relate to this world through myself and my version of myself, Jimbo, and has sort of an immediate connection with people. I love that it's sort of like a nickname and that sort of, it softens an interaction right off the top that people, you know, before I was known by my drag name as Jimbo around the world now, before when people would meet me as Jimbo, it would make them smile and they would laugh and they go, oh, Jimbo, like, okay, I guess we're friends already. And I'm like, yes, let's be fucking friends. I love it. I'm curious about the pace of the show because one thing I'm always so enamored by about Drag Race is, you know, you'll have these challenges where you have to, you know, fully create these characters and these looks and have the runway and and you might be singing for a competition or dancing and whatnot. Then the runway happens, you're done, and then it's on to the next challenge. And so how did you find the pace of the show and having to show so many facets of your drag in rapid succession? Well, I am a workaholic. I say yes to everything. I work in film, I work in theater, and so I started by working in theater, and when you're working as an independent artist in theater, you have to take sometimes four, five gigs at a time, and I was designing numerous shows at a time, and I realized pretty early on that if you say you're okay, and you take a deep breath, and you show the outside world that everything is under control, and the people look at you, and they go, well, I mean, he doesn't look like he's that stressed, so he must not be that stressed. And so I learned to really manage my stress levels. Inwardly, I could be freaking out and going, holy fuck, how am I going to make this thing happen that I said I was going to do? But I just never, you know, let people see me sweat. So people go, okay, well, you're having a good time. You seem to think this is going to happen. So I'm going to believe it too. Then from there, my drag and my costumes that I make, I'm usually making them right before I perform. And the first time I usually wear them is when I'm performing. So I'll usually embody a character fully right before going on stage for the first time so that everything is new. The key to clowning is shared surprise. And so the more you can share your discoveries of that character in that moment, the fresher and the funnier it is. And so I really don't like to sit in a look for too long prior to going out. I really love that immediacy of being on the toes and just going, whoa, that was fucking intense, but I am ready and I am here and I'm going to put on this voice and this character and I'm going to do my thing. And so Drag Race is really about that. It's about having a task, rising the occasion, making it happen, doing it to the number of 10, and then blasting out and forgetting about what you just did and doing a whole other thing and then doing that in succession. And that's my whole life is on a deadline, make it happen, what's the next thing, deadline, make it happen, deadline, and so I was built for it, and I made it, and I love it. I want to ask you about two of my favorite moments from this season. I want to caveat by saying I'm a huge fan of The Real Housewives, and I felt like you gave us two excellent Housewives-level moments on the show, and I kind of want to just get into your head a little bit and find out what you were thinking. So, 
the first happened on episode seven. You took issue with the judge's critiques and you have this fabulous quote that I want to read back to you. You say, quote, they all hated this dress. Jeffrey said, I don't look glamorous at all. But it's one thing to say, I think you should be more glamorous or my version of glamour. But to say that I'm not glamorous at all, that's like saying always, never. I think he maybe needs to look up the word glamour. You question my taste level, I question your knowledge of the English language. Oh, oh shit. What a read. But I really want to particularly point out something that you said and, and the intonation of which really stayed with me when you said, that's like saying always, never. And I think it sort of gave me a window into how Jimbo sees the world and this idea that things are not so binary, which I think is, if there's any art form that upholds that, it's drag. Break down for me what was going through your head in that moment. Well, in that moment, you know, I'm thinking about the humanity of it all. I'm thinking about I am a man that is a clown, that is then a drag queen, that is then in their dream on the largest platform that, you know, a drag queen in Canada can have. And I have brought to that stage in that moment my attempt, my clown attempt at being my most beautiful pageant self. And so you know, when you have that huge ball of intention and beauty and comedy and you have someone showing up with this great big gift in their hand saying, here you go. Here is my best attempt at giving you what I think you want. And when someone just goes, you're not glamorous at all. That is not a gift. Go to the garbage. I'm like, what? You know, what the fuck? And so that, it was shocking to me that, you know, that there wasn't first the ability to see the person, the artist and the gift in that moment and to just cancel it all with one comment that you are not glamorous at all. And it didn't show me saying that back to him. But I was like, not glamorous at all, like at all. And they were like, no. And then they didn't show Stacy, but she was like, I don't like anything on this look. None of it. And I was like, none of it? You don't like any of it. I have 75 feet of four-ply ostrich feather that cost me $1,800 on this fucking gown. I have diamonds pouring out of my motherfucking eardrums. Not even on my earlobes, out of my ear holes. I have diamonds crying out of my eyes. My hair is in a freaking shitload of these goddamn curls. And she says to me, I kind of like your glove. I'm like, oh, you kind of like my glove. Oh, you kind of like my glove. I was like, fuck you, you kind of like my fucking glove. I was like, fuck my goddamn glove. That glove was the cheapest piece of shit I had on my body. And I was like, how dare you talk about my glove? What about my outfit? And so <laughs> I was pissed and I did not agree. Apparently I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> was there any part of you in that moment that was hurt? I mean, obviously we saw an anger and, and it's justifiably so. You, as you're mentioning, you worked really hard in that outfit and it wasn't being seen. They were finding the glove, the like something that you gave very little thought to when you're showing so much thought throughout the look. But was there any part of you in, in their inability to see what you were presenting? Did any part of that hurt? I thought in the moment, you 
fuckers are wanting me to snap. And oh, I am gonna snap, girl! You are making me crazy! And so I was on my last nerve. And you know, with that denim challenge being so disappointing, with the patches, you know, 100 jeans cut into individual squares, oh thousands squares hand sewn together, then freaking frayed. I'm seven feet goddamn tall. My hands are painted blue to match my stupid ass face for Jeffrey goddamn Boyer Chapman. I have my ponytail, ponytailed, and I'm standing there and Rita wins. And I'm like, what? Why? 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 <laughs> Why? Is that? And so, you know, I was on the brink of insanity. And so then when they said that to me, I thought, oh, you guys are trying to make me snap. You are trying to go, oh, Jimbo, it's okay. And we see what you're trying to do. You are trying to make me crazy and angry and it worked. And I stormed out of there and into Untucked. And I was like, you know, you, you quoted it. And I was like, Jeffrey is a freaking idiot. And look up the goddamn word, bitch. And then, you know, Rita was like, you know, seeing how upset and angry I was, then she decides to say, oh, you know, I have a bit of advice that you have not asked for. Um, did you mean to look so old after you painted for three hours? I'm like, okay, bitch, that's not advice. That's a fucking question <laughs> about why I look old when you painted beside me for three fucking hours. So now you're going to get it, ho, because Jeffrey Boyer Chaplin isn't here. And so I'm going to murder you. <laughs> So wait, let's get, let's get into that though, because I want to read that quote as well, because I love what you say to her. But then I also want to mention, after you and Rita have this very heated exchange, the love that you two feel for each other is very clearly on display. And I kind of, one of my favorite things about a good reality television fight is when underneath it all, the love that two people have for each other kind of shows. And it doesn't appear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like, you, it seems like you two were able to leave that fight in the room and continue on. And it seemed like you two, the respect that you two have for each other preceded that moment and continued on afterwards. But let me read that quote first. You say, quote, your lace line looks like barf. Your hair is fried. The oh. wig should go directly in the garbage. Oh, the oh, girls are fighting. Baby, I'm just trying to help. I mean, your hair looks like a grandma just dunked her head in the toilet. This is how you react when I'm trying to help you. So maybe I'll keep my comment for myself next time. I mean, your I mean, hair I call her old all the time, but I like this hair. I'd wear this hair. Look I at it. The like the flyways everywhere. It's uneven. I'm not trying to be a bitch, but that hair is thirsty. No, like I said. <laughs> it seemed like there was no blood loss between you two by the end of the episode. But in that moment, that is, is that as real as it seemed? Yeah, you know, like I... <laughs> This, I have this thing where I am all good and I'm so happy and you can come for me and I'm going to be smiley and I'm going to listen. But like the second that that floodgate opens, you know, it's kind of like exhaling. I had been holding my breath about so much and I finally just exhaled and was like, okay, your fucking wig line looks like welcome. I'm a fucking from hell and I'm going to read you the girl. And I just, it started to flow out of me. And I was like, oh, and on second thought, you got those fucking flyaways. And on third thought, that's fucking crispy, ho. And on fourth thought, put that in the fucking garbage, bitch. And I just like, you know, it just started to flow out of me. And you can see, I kind of, by the time I'm saying, I don't mean to be a bitch, I'm laughing because I realize I am being the biggest bitch on earth as it's happening, as it's flowing out of me. And I can't 
stop it. I am this pageant fucking bitch that has just been told she looks like an old dump truck. And I am going, I can't handle this anymore. And I need to snap and I'm coming for you. And luckily it's as deep as the costume and you strip away the costume you strip away Rita's dry ass wig and she's beautiful Rita under there who I love so dearly and you know Rita and I are good friends and she knew exactly what it was you know she's more sad about the audience response to that fight than she is about what I said to her which is you know just fun between two bitches on reality tv and we looked like bitches and we were bitches because we're freaking drag queens of course so just so people understand, you and Rita, and I know you just said this, but just to underline it, you and Rita are good. That moment happened in that moment, and afterwards it was done, and you two are sisters. Yes, like I, you know, it's easy to kind of like kick up that dust inside of me about so many things. Uh, like the dust settles, I go back to being calm, and I'm like, oh yeah, we're all like besties or whatever. But like, as soon as I start talking about it, it makes me insane and I go crazy again. But you know, at the, at the root of it, it's funny. It's so funny to me because it's really just about two men trying to look beautiful, coming for each other because they don't look in their own each other's eyes. They don't look beautiful enough. And you know, it's, it's just hilarious. It's just two guys trying to be fucking beautiful and both of them going, fuck you bitch, try harder. I love it. So I got your blood boiling right now. Oh yes, I am. <laughs> Father go. <laughs> Let's talk about the snatch game because you're Joan Rivers. I mean, it doesn't even need to be said. We'll we'll throw to a clip when we post this. But I mean, it's just top tier. Get me the hell out of here! I keep clicking my goddamn heels together like duty. Don't you talk about my mother like that? Your mother and I invented the snatch game. Okay, you missed your mother. Smell my goddamn fingers. <laughs> And you know what, I honestly, I can't believe it took the series 11 years to get a Joan Rivers performance on Drag Race, but thank God it was you that brought it and did it so flawlessly, because imagine if we had gotten a bad Joan Rivers, it would have been just so disrespectful. But it's very clear in your impression how much you love Joan Rivers, and we recently had the anniversary of her passing. And I, I just, it, it got me thinking and watching old clips of her again on YouTube and just getting into that rabbit hole. What, as a clown, as a self-professed clown that you are, what is it that Joan Rivers means to you? Well, you know, Joan was a huge boundary pusher, trailblazer. She was, you know, one of a pioneer in female comedy about taking stereotypes about women and sexuality and women's sexuality. And, you know, as she grew older, she started to own her age. And she really was sort of, you know, she didn't take life too seriously. And she really wanted to have big conversations. She wanted to tell jokes and to tour the world and start big conversations about what women should say, about what's appropriate, about taboo words, you know, like fag and, and you know, all these taboo things. And, she, you know, she really worked to try and, take the sting out of these things through comedy and to say like let's look at these things let's have these awkward conversations let's talk about sex and let's talk about growing old and let's talk about things that are hard to talk about and let's laugh at them and so you know she basically went a lot of places where people wouldn't go and you know that people look at it and go maybe you shouldn't go there and you know in certain instances you know her comedy was 
very dark, very, you know, off. But at the same time, that's art, that's conversation, that's her conversation. And so, you know, that was really important to me in my portrayal of her to, to really pick the best parts of her sense of humor and her drag and really, or not her drag, but her, her clown. It is drag. Like, it, it feel, I mean, Joan Rivers is drag. It is, exactly. Yeah, the best part of her drag and to really portray that and to, you know, to just sort of like, yeah, really honor her because she is such a legend and an icon. And I really wanted to just, you know, she was just so funny and bitchy and she's sort of like a, yeah, she is a drag queen really. And so, you know, reading people, that's what she did. And I love that that was one of the rare moments when the judges seemed to be aligned with what the audience was thinking. And we were like, okay, yes, Jimbo is turning it out in this moment. I want to throw to Matt. Matt has a question for you. So I do. So I love the music videos that you have put out, everything you've been in and everything you've made. And it's clear from them that you have a deep love of not just music, but music videos that we grew up with. And so the music video I really want to talk about is Barbie Girl by Aqua, which is so expertly done because it starts as an homage and then moves into this critique, satire. And this is a song that's content hasn't aged well, right? Like it does seem not up to the standards of what we want for equality and how to treat women and how to treat anybody. But that said, it has this root in drag and burlesque and you made it your own and you can't deny the impact on it. So my question is when putting a video together like that, are you thinking about all that stuff? And how, do you, how did you come to this incredible vision that is just so off the wall and incredibly done? Well, thank you so much for all of those beautiful words about our art, I absolutely love that. You know, I love the, the whole notion around Barbie and, you know, again, it's this weird social construct around beauty, around image, around body. And so I really love to play with those weird tropes around femininity, sexuality. And so I thought it was a perfect opportunity to kind of make, I played both the Ken and the Barbie. And in my mind, Ken was this plastic surgeon that was gonna make this Barbie girl. And so you sort of, we meet Barbie, she's, you know, spraying her pesticides on her lawn. And then he says, let's go party. And then he basically does these surgeries to her and she has her big, huge tits and her big butt and she has her hair done. And then she goes wild at this party and kills everybody at her pool party. And then eventually murders um, Ken with her breasts. And so that's the, that was the storyline in my mind. And, you know, I really wanted to, as we were getting into Drag Race and we had filmed Drag Race and um, I knew my journey on that show. I knew I was having to fight the whole way through to really tell my story and to show my perspective. And so I knew that this was the perfect opportunity to show the world who I was through a video um, before the show, the, the series aired, so that you know I could really give my fans a sense of who I am before the show unraveled. And so I really wanted to show everybody uh, my love of both the, the clown and my boy clown self as the Ken and my drag queen clown self. And I really wanted to show my different breast sizes because I absolutely love all my different breasts. So I'm so grateful that you love it. I want to go back and spend the rest of our time learning more about your early life because we got a few hints of your early life in, in some confessionals that you did on the series, but I don't know a ton about your time before Drag Race and I want to know, can you tell me what was young Jimbo like? What were some of your early experiences growing up? Sure, yeah. I didn't talk about it much on the show because it's a very dark, sad past. I was afraid 
of really spending too much time talking about my trauma. And so I kind of asked them to avoid it. And in the last sort of work through where Stacy McKenzie comes around and she talks to everyone, they have that moment where people cry um, in the workroom. She asked me in that moment, will you talk to me about your father? And I said, this is inappropriate timing. I am here trying to sew this look and you want to crack me open like a nut on national TV for two minutes before you walk away. And I was like, there's no freaking way. And so, you know, it was too bad because like you're saying, there's a, there's a great sort of hole in my story. So I appreciate you asking. And, and, you know, growing up, I grew up in a very functionally dysfunctional family. My dad was, and mom both were alcoholics. My mom left my dad when I was about 10 and she got into AA and she basically saved herself. And and my dad spiraled into depression and alcoholism. And he basically hijacked my brother and I's life and brainwashed us into working and giving him our debit and our credit cards. And so then he, my brother and I just sacrificed many, 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 many years of ourselves where we weren't allowed to be gay. You know, we were very afraid to be out. And so we were closeted and basically he, we worked for him and he took all of our money. And in the end, he had the same name as me and he got all these credit cards in my name and then put the house in our name and then basically took all the equity from this house and bankrupted my brother and put me into debt of you know, $750,000. And I escaped to the West Coast and hid from him until he died. And so that was all super painful and very dark. And there was a lot of just like abuse and sadness. And so I was sort of at school, I was kind of an outsider. I didn't really have a lot of friends. A lot, you know, all the boys thought that I was too girly. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot of guy friends. And then all the girls, you know, kind of you know, liked me and they thought I was so cute. But, you know, when you're growing up and especially in those days, being liked by the girls and not by the boys was an even worse giveaway because if you're liked by the boys and you're liked by the girls, then you're killing it because you're a good boy and you're, you know, appealing. But if you're not liked by the boys because you're too girly and then the girls like you because you're so girly, then you're like, no, like, just not helping me right now. And so I ended up not really having very many friends and not really fitting in. And so, you know, there was, at a very young age, I felt suicidal and I would tell, I would cry at night and I would say to my mom, I'm only living for you. I want to kill myself and I don't fit in and I'm a weirdo. And I'm, you know, at the time I didn't really have a lot of gay role models. There wasn't gay people on TV. There was, you know, my parents had a very limited number of gay people in their lives and they would say to me like, oh, it's okay if you're gay. Are you like so-and-so? You, you know, so-and-so is gay. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like so-and-so is a recovering alcoholic that has like a few teeth left and they're also like, you know, 60. And so it's hard to look at that and go, yeah, I I think I'm like that guy. <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't really have a lot of positive role models that were gay. And so that combined with how abusive and overbearing and fearful of my, my dad was of us being gay. He burned anything of ours that was remotely gay. He would burn it in our fireplace. And so 
you know, that was all led to a lot of repression, a lot of insecurity. I was insecure about how I walked. I was insecure about how I talked. I was insecure about my fashion choices. I was insecure about everything because it was all viewed as wrong. It was all viewed as different. And I eventually was programmed that if I liked something, that meant it was gay and I shouldn't like it. And so I became afraid to like things. I became afraid to tell people when I like things. And so um, that was really frustrating for me, like at Christmas time and at birthdays, you know, when I was, I wasn't able to say what I wanted and own what I wanted. And so I got what people thought I should have. And so that was always this, this disappointing disconnect because I was screaming from my inside about who I am and it was wrong. And then I was being shown who I was supposed to be by the outside through these gifts that didn't um, match with my inside. And so the whole thing was super confusing, very sad, very dark. And I eventually, through my high school years, I was able to, you know, find my sense of humor and, you know, kind of just say, fuck it. Like, I'm just, this is me. So I've got to own that. And I'm going to be funny and I'm going to make jokes. And I'm going to, you know, try and get people on my side through humor. And slowly through my humor and a lot of time and a lot of patience, I was, I felt safe. And, you know, by moving away from my dad and excommunicating with him, I really did allow myself to seek joy, to seek beauty and to spread joy and spread beauty. And, you know, I like to say I was burnished in the flames of hell. And, you know, once you're tortured to the point where you want to actually end your life, when you come out of that, you're like, okay, I am stronger. I will be my own judge. I will tell myself what is okay. And I will share that with the world. And so I've been able to become more fearless and more powerful in myself ever since I've been able to own who I am and to love who I am. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to ask, was there a particular moment or over time when you began to unlearn this idea that being gay was bad? It strikes me as so interesting because what I see as Jimbo, the drag queen that I saw in Canada's Drag Race, that Jimbo is such a celebration of ostentatiousness and just verbosity and just being this fabulous, confident person and very gay, Jimbo's just so gay. Um, was there a moment when you began to have that shift in your head that not only was gay not bad, it could actually be a, a wonderful aspect of who you are? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that flower that grows up through a crack in the sidewalk. And it's like, life and beauty will find its way to the surface, to the light. And I was, you know, continually tried to be put down by all kinds of pressures and ideas, self-inflicted and outward as well. And so slowly, you know, as you come out of your shell and you're given the space to grow and explore who you are, and you realize that, oh, you know, you're okay and you are safe and you are loved and you know the it's really my communities that have done that. My communities in Kitchener-Waterloo, my communities in out here in Victoria, it's all of the love that I've received from my communities that have helped foster my best Jimbo and have let me, that have basically allowed myself to be beautiful, allowed myself to say I am talented, to allow myself to say 
I am an artist, to allow myself to say I am beautiful and to not be afraid, you know, like I was when I was brought up, I was afraid to say those things because I didn't want them to be taken away. And now that I'm not under, you know, such abuse and such pressures, I am so received so much love from people saying, yes, we love this. Yes, sing for us. Yes, sing, you know, make jokes for us. Yes, be crazy. Yes, be beautiful. Yes, be a slut. And so having all of the people rally and say, yes, we love you. Yes, we see you. Yes, you're amazing, has helped me be all those things. And now I want to be a leader for other people and to say, yes, you are amazing. And yes, it is okay. And yes, be you, be freaky, be amazing, be unapologetic, be fucking wacko, be loud, be you, be free and be happy and be loved. And so that's what I try to embody. It's funny, one of my very first DMs to you on Instagram was after seeing you on one of the early episodes of the show, and I messaged you just to say, you make me happy to be gay. That's the feeling that you evoke within me. So it's interesting hearing your journey that you've gone through because I think, if anything, if my reaction is indicative of many people's, it's that I think that you inspire a sense of not only like joy in people, but a proudness about that being gay is not just okay, being gay is excellent. Oh yeah, it's freaking amazing. Yeah, so we're gonna wrap up in a bit, but I do wanna ask sort of how you got to drag because I'm very interested, you know, learning about your past, when did the wigs and the makeup come into play because Clowning is its own art form, and obviously there is makeup involved with clowning, but why did you go the, the route of drag versus standard clownery? Is there standard clownery? Is that a thing? Or versus like stand-up comedy? Why did you choose this aspect of the art form? So basically, you know, my whole life is really just about storytelling and self-expression. And so, you know, as a kid, I would escape into stories. I would be walking around my block, trying to get out of my house. And I would be in my imagination, dreaming of my future, dreaming of stories. And so as I moved throughout my life, I became interested, you know, studying biology. I have a degree in biology and I traveled to Uganda and Kenya and I studied in Stockholm. When I was doing my biology and ecology work, the most fascinating part about that was really the villages that I went to and the people that I went to and the, the cultures that I saw. And at the root of that is really about the stories behind all of those and the people. And so as I moved into theater and I was still afraid to be the one on stage, it was for me really about facilitating the story and about creating the world. And so I'm a set designer and a prop builder and a costume maker. And, and so that was all in support of storytelling and about transporting people to another place and evoking a feeling through artistry. And then that developed, you know, because I'm a procrastinator and because I have these big visions, I would sometimes be making something and deliver it to this group I was working with or continue to work with Atomic Vaudeville. And it would be too late for anyone else to do it because I had been on my own working and I'd made a puppet or I'd made this fantastic costume and I had my own concept for what was going to happen but then no one could execute it except for me because the show was about to start and so I was like okay I have to do this and so it was my gateway into performance was in puppeteering because I was um, sort of hiding behind something I would control this piece of art that I had made and I would connect through that and then I toured as a puppeteer with this show I designed with my partner at the time Hank Pine called Ride the Cyclone and I would dress in the same outfit as the puppet I was doing so that at my bows 
when I came out from behind the puppet, I still looked like the puppet and people loved that. And I was like, I just didn't want the illusion to stop there. I didn't want people to go, oh, there's this freaking dweeb behind the puppet. I wanted to come out as the amazing Karnak and greet the audience as the amazing Karnak and keep that alive. And people love that. And so that was when I discovered what uh, the bowing was. When my friend said, my director said, you were actually thanking the audience. They're thanking you and you are thanking them back for coming and for watching. And I was like, oh, I love that. I can thank the audience because the bow to me felt so weird to finish this thing and to go stand there and go, oh, everyone clap for me now. I, I didn't understand that. And so she said, no, you're going and you're thanking them at those. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. And so then I loved that feeling and I started doing performing in vaudeville as a clown and as sort of an improv, doing a bit of stand-up. And then as I became more comfortable being a clown and being on stage, I started to infuse back in those things that I was told that were wrong about myself, my femininity, you know, my sexuality, all of those things that were, you know, not masculine that I was told to repress and to hide and that were shameful and that were bad. You know, my dad wasn't there to abuse me anymore. And my friends loved everything I did. And they said, you know, when I started being more feminine and being a drag queen and a drag clown, people loved it. They were like, yes, get out your titties. Yes. You know, dance the fuck around, be a big slut do it and so I was like I love being a slut I love having big tits and then they were like good then get on your big fucking tits and be a slut bitch and I was like yes and so it sort of has evolved from there it's just it's a slow weaving in of everything I love and it circles back in and then all builds and strings it's kind of like a big beautiful braid very well said and especially too because it's like Jimbo the Jimbo that I saw in Drag Race she is a comedy queen but she is a fashion queen and she is the sex positive goddess she is so many things and so as you articulated as a braid I really do see that I want to wind down by talking about the fashions for a second because it can't go unstated the level of not just fashion that you brought, the creativity. It is akin to me as a longtime viewer of Drag Race to a lot of what Raja was doing on season three, which is sort of this mixture of runway and drag. And not to say one has to be one or the other, I love a gray area, but there's just something about your looks that I would watch the show every week with my boyfriend and my jaw would drop. And I want to particularly highlight the look you did with all of the hair. How do you, how do you even describe that one? Yeah, my maxi maximum look. I love that. That was my dream come true was, you know, I love wigs. I love hair. And, you know, watching Drag Race over the years, I was like, give me a hair challenge. I want to have the biggest hair, the most hair that's ever been on Drag Race. And so this hair challenge was sort of the perfect opportunity for me to order as much hair as I could. And my partner spent days and days and days braiding 14 wigs. He hand braided everyone till his hands were all cramped up. And then we made this harness. I bought all these harnesses, these belts from the store in town. And then I, I do leather work. So I cut apart all these belts. I, I love that they had those little chains. And so I cut them apart and I made this sexy sort of harness that I knew could support all the different wigs. Because I was like, how am I going to you know, actually have all that hair. And so, yeah, it was sort of like my favorite thing. It was all about my body. It was all about sexuality, sort of that bondage And then I got to have the biggest hair ever, which I love so much. Yes. Clowns are always more, so. You know, 
And it must be said how difficult it is to work with leather for anyone that doesn't know. I mean, just, you know, as a lover of fashion, seeing the details of your work was quite amazing. I have to ask you, I'm curious, as someone who is this seamstress and this incredible designer, I mean, you are so many things. When you look across the workroom and you see another queen who has emptied out her wallet to buy lots of looks to purchase fashions, is there any part of you that gets a little bit ticked off to know that sort of we're not all playing from the same starting point? You know, I think that drag is really just about who is on the inside. And so, you know, not all of us are designers and sewers. And so that really takes a whole bunch of different skills to be the most well-rounded, perfect, beautiful drag queen. And so, you know, I, I love the fact that I am a trained designer, that luckily I have gravitated towards sewing. It's something that is in me. And, you know, so not everyone has that, just like, I don't have the dancing abilities that, um, you know, someone like Scarlett Bobo with these like high kicks and the death drops and the flips, you know, so it's each one of us has our strength and that sort of builds the drag queen from, you know, the little seed of what their strength is. Or is it that you have the most banging body of all time? Is it that you have naturally this crazy bone stretcher? Is it naturally that you are so flexible or are you this crazy dancer? I happen to be, my strength is in my ability to create and realize my visions and my dreams. And so I am, I just feel so lucky. And you know, some of the other queens that brought looks that were conceived by other people, they had no way to defend themselves, to say, you don't understand what I'm doing and I don't either, unfortunately, because I didn't think of it, someone else did. And in the moment, you know, for me, having conceived and executed those looks, I had a point of view that I could stand behind, that I could stand there and go, I believe in this, I see this, this is me because I made this. And so that helped me go far in the, com in the competition because, you know, although they weren't necessarily agreeing with my point of view, they, I, I at least was realizing my point of view to a level that was undeniable. And so, that's what was, you know, allowed me to have the, the run that I had, whereas some of the other queens, you know, were more at the whim of whatever they had ordered and kind of just were like, whoops, you know, it didn't really work. And they kind of were like, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. I want to end by asking, I'm sure many people are wondering where they can see you next. What's next for Jimbo? Obviously, we're all following you on social media, but is there anything, you know, wrapping up 2020 and looking into 2021 that fans of yours, and we are a mighty army, us fans of yours can look forward to? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram as Jimbo the Drag Clown, where I will be continuing to re release um, photos that we've taken over the past several months. Um, there's so many photos. There's like 1,400 photos of the looks and of the photo shoots that I, I haven't released yet. We also are working on a new show called The House of Jimbo. I have a Kickstarter where we're fundraising. And the idea is to create um, sort of like a Pee Wee's Playhouse, sort of new take on Pee Wee's Playhouse, just sort of that 
throwback to the nostalgia of classic television, but with a, a modern sort of bizarre twist and to weave in my drag and my clown characters and to also sort of work with this amazing community that I've now been, you know, invited into. The Drag Race family is, you know, some of the most beautiful, talented, incredible people, you know, performers in the world. And I am fortunate enough now to be able to work with some of those queens. And so it's my excitement to, and, you know, my, my dream to help and collaborate with them and to provide another space outside of Drag Race and to cultivate drag and to cultivate expression and to do it in my own bizarre, weird way. I love that. And I think many of us, I'm not allowed to ask you about this, but many of us are hoping that we will see you perhaps once again on a Drag Race series at some point. That could be super fun. But I just, I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to particularly thank you for opening up about your early life. I really value that you see this as a safe space in which you can do that. And I just want to underline once more, so many of us watch this show this season amidst the many pandemics that are going on in this world right now. And we're able to look at someone like you and smile and laugh and find joy and find beauty. And I like so much how you have so much to offer. It's not just glamor, it's not just comedy. It's, it, it's just the depth of Jimbo is just incredible. And I thank you for making the time. And I just, I can't remember a queen in the past that's made my heart beat the way you do. And so I just am honored to have spent this time together. Oh my God, Evan, you are a wordsmith like <laughs> no other. Can you just, could you just take me that? Oh, I guess we are doing that right now. I'm gonna listen to this every night. Shut up, Evan. Shut up. Evan, shut up, Evan. Oh God, I hit my screen. Ah, shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.